Welcome to Project 50's Town Moor Walk. Please take a moment to listen to this introduction before beginning your journey around the city. To enjoy the walk fully, listen carefully to the directions given at the start of each chapter. You can always skip back if you're unsure of where you should be. After you hear the directions, you will hear the title of the piece and its author. Pause the recording here until you're in the right place. If you're standing comfortably, then we'll begin. The walk begins at the newly constructed Haymarket Metro Station. Pause outside and listen to the first piece. Standing Outside Haymarket in the Sun by Greta Brewer-Backen I want a sandwich, a job, a job making sandwiches. I want a later flight because I don't want a taxi. I want to go to Pret and I want mustard and mayo tangy on my lips. I want to spend less than four quid at Costa while writing about lesbian vampires in a girl's bedroom. I want the angel to fly, to fall, to fly. I want him to notice me. I want to kiss his mouth, breathe his breath, ride at his side to Newcastle International on the green line. I want to hack off my hair and lie on the stones and accumulate frost in the bends of my elbows. I want my girlfriend back. I want to kiss his mouth. I really want a sandwich. Cross over the pedestrian crossing towards the church. Go around the church to the left and follow the path through the gardens. Pause outside the civic centre. More by Christine Goodwin. O lofty tower of the civic centre, crenellated with seahorses and crowned with the three castles. How you are more than just mere council officers and home of the Lord Mayor's regalia. O lofty tower of the civic centre, graced with fountains and statues, once visited by presidents. How you are more than just a place for us to pay our rents and rates and home of our city administration. We will never forget your birth, vision of modernism, the new Brasilia, the slum clearances and the raising of a beautiful area of the old city to create a shopping centre. Some of us applauded, some of us grieved, but the regeneration was relentless. Oh, the regeneration and the vision of T. Dan Smith. T. Dan Smith. How he was more than just the son of a Wall's End miner whose painting and decorating firm had the contract for painting most of the council houses. He was the Labour leader of the council, Mr. Newcastle himself with his vision of a modernist city, the mouth of the time to his opponents, whose legacy gave us Crudders Park, Eldon Square and you, our civic centre, Dan's Castle. We will never forget the Polson affair, the hubris and the greed that laid the visionary low. We eagerly devoured the tales of corruption, were shocked by the fall from grace, unmoved by the six-year jail sentence for the anti-hero. In those days, the water gushed from the hand of the Tyne God, and he was proud. But now, beneath your lofty tower, the slimy water falls in a dribble, and the Tyne God seems tired. Continue past the Civic Centre until you are opposite the Great North Museum. Lies by Laurie McDean I can feel the wind grazing my face with its steel claws, and I bury my head into my thick tweed hood to hide. The seasons have most definitely turned. I am no longer able to air my fingers and feel the sting of the city. 
Rather, they are hidden behind warm knitted gloves, carrying years of dirt and the stale smell of hand-rolled cigarettes. I draw my knees into my chest for shelter. The damp soil from the patch of muddy grass on which I am sitting is seeping through my jeans, freezing my damp bum cheeks to the bone. I glance off the pavement and my dirty jeans catch my eye. If depression were a colour, my jeans would be it. As the dismal colour fills my head, my thoughts stick on the words. I look at the tightly woven fabric, worn thin at the knees of my once black jeans, and blame them. Strangers pass me, avoiding my huddled frame as I watch their feet, their footsteps echoing in my head like a hundred drums all walking at an individual tempo, which dictates their precise daily activity. The work walkers are direct and quick-paced. The students all stumble to stay with their herd and travel at a speed which is slower than that of the work walkers. The shoppers are lazy and light-footed in the morning, but laden with bags they pick up their pace on their return, anxious to get home with their proud new purchases. The fools. They don't see that their money just makes the lies grow. I watch for the socks. The blatant cheek of some people's socks lightly amuses me, poking out between shoes and trainers. I laugh out loud to myself. If only they knew how naughty their socks were. I have found that the brighter the sock, the cheekier it is. Red ones and yellow ones in particular have the audacity to show themselves in the street with every step. The more subdued black and grey ones keep their proper place obediently, or perhaps shyly, warming ankles and lining shoes as they should do without the need to flash themselves with every stride. The type of person who wears cheeky socks is a mystery to me. They walk confidently, secure of their place in this world. They are the ones who believe it all. They are the ones that life was made for. It is easy for them. I secretly wish I was the type of person to wear cheeky socks, but I know the truth and my socks respect that. I also watch the water. Did you know puddle water soaked up the back of trousers is in fact, I think, a precise measuring device for time. The distance which water has spread is directly proportional to the time you have spent walking. Once I find others who know the truth, I'm going to rent a room in that fancy university over there and have a team of 50 people, all wearing wet trousers, studying my observations. I surmise from a pair of trousers, which have two inches of soaking fabric, that the trousers have been walking for 10 minutes from an easterly direction. If they are muddy, they have come from the right and across the field, and at this point I have to wonder how much is mud and how much is in fact cow shit. Some feet pass me by every day, and I am strangely comforted by the familiar scuff on the right toe of one lady's black patent leather court shoes. Her socks would most definitely be cheeky, although I think she may have a rare naughty black pair, or maybe a mischievous green pair or two. A pair of feet, whom I recognise by a grey left trouser hem, in desperate need of stitching, passes me daily and enters the building ahead of me. I know it's 9am when his slow gait rocks past me and through the heavy doors. Does he believe? His socks are not brightly coloured and do not show any signs of cheek. This warms me. Is he like me? Does he know too? The stones and foundations are true, but I fear I can't say the same for the air and the history which they feed to them. Do they not see they live in the dark? How can they not believe me? They do not stop to read my sign. They do not want to live my words. They are happy in ignorance. My path is the truth. My knowledge will guide me to the believers and they will warm themselves in my light. 
When the left crooked hem leaves the building at 5pm, I know it's my time to depart. I don't tell them what I do all day, but I know I have to be back for 5.30 for my tea and my evening meds, or I'll be on supervision trips for the next two weeks. They think I walk around the park, or walk up and down the local high street. Sometimes I tell them I've been to somewhere and visited a friend, and I think they believe me. If they don't, I'm not questioned as long as I come home reasonably clean and by 5.30pm. I do sometimes go to the park, but in winter I'm alone with the ducks and they don't want to listen. They're merely props to make the believers blindly follow. Supervision trips mean one of them has to come with me when I go out, and then I can't go out where I like. Someone has to be free to escort me. It used to be Tina. She's okay. She lets me smoke. But then likes to take me to the library to try and win me over, I reckon. Stop talking nonsense, she says. She thinks if she shows me science books and pictures from history, then I will believe them too. What use is a library full of rubbish? It's all part of their plan. But I do sometimes like to go. The library impresses me. They are the root of control within the community. The power of the library frustrates me. But even as an outsider, I can recognise a job well done. All these people waiting for books filled with false facts and made-up histories. And they make people think it's a privilege to have such a fantastic free service. Genius. The television reigns victorious, but the power comes from what they have in those books. I applaud their success and clap my hands together loudly and bellow the sarcastic praise at the top of my lungs. My message explodes in the silence, and I get high on the excitement of my disturbance. Breaking the peace, I am usually asked to leave, and I do. My thrill is short-lived, but thoroughly invigorating. Now Tina won't take me anymore, and the others shy away from it. That's why I sit here every day, apart from Sunday. Sunday is my day of rest. Walk up the hill, on the same side of the road, toward the library at the top. Before you reach the summit, pause at the junction with Jesmond Road West. Feel by Lindsay Rogers. The leaves crunch beneath my feet. A damp, limp mess cling to my boots, the soles flapping down like mouths chattering. I imagine the mess getting under my toenails, moving into my veins, dancing through my tired legs, up towards the curve of my thighs, before resting in my stomach, fluttering. I'm hoping for a sign of some sunlight. A row of buildings stand in line to my right, and as I pass, a strange sensation overcomes me. I can't just walk past these slices of domestic and corporate lives. I have to inhabit them. I pass the first doorway, flying into a rage, pounding my fists at a green bedroom door. She hasn't cleaned her bloody room for the fifth day in a row. I yell in pain as I stumble on the hairdryer plug, the punishment for daring to enter her domain. With another step I feel more serene. I'm now sitting by low light, absorbed in a book, feet curled and arms flopped, warmed by the fire. I don't want to leave. Another few stops take me past a plant creeping up the wall. I've arrived at number 15 with terrible timing, but it's too late to escape now. I'm struck immediately by a pulse separate from my own, throbbing and squealing. I can see two shadows distorted by the half-closed blinds. It's not the anger of the shadows that I'm feeling, but something far more pure than that. Fear. I'm sobbing as quietly as possible in case they hear me. I want nothing more than to curl into the tightest ball imaginable at the top of the stairs, clutching my blanket and praying that the voices will stop.
I wipe away tears with my gloved hand. I glide past a few empty offices, drowning in important files on the ring of the telephone. Client names, contact numbers and emails are the only language used here. I don't linger, but push past, hands cupping my ears, their red stung edges welcoming the heat. The pavement that seemed to stretch far beyond sight now takes on a curve, calling for my decision. I can only hear the wind and the scuff of my boots against the pavement as I move, aware of how much my pace has been altered by these voices, stories that I pass every day without thought. I move into something of a jog, my clumsy stomps making me more self-conscious, but I know I'll be late if I don't get going. Time quickened, then slowed down, then quickened again, but something has been gained, I feel. Continue up the hill and past the library. Follow the cycle route to the left of the university buildings. Pause at the junction with Windsor Terrace. Look, by Edwin Humphreys. Excuse me. Hello? Excuse me, sir. Madam? Would you please... You can't all be going to a wedding, surely? Could I have a few moments of your time? That's most kind of you. It won't take long. I want to tell you about my friend, Jimmy and his kid brother, Alan. They shared a flat just up the road from here. We all liked Jimmy. He was fun to be with. You know, laid back, cheerful, generous, with time and money. A good six foot tall and energetic with it. Never idle, Jimmy. Always changing jobs. Bricklayer, greengrocer, restaurant manager. Loved meeting people, did Jimmy. Alan? Well, Alan was different. A little runt of a fellow, to be honest. Decent enough in his own way, I guess. But none of Jimmy's personality. Had brains, though, did Alan. Studying at university in those days. And he worshipped Jimmy, his big brother, his hero. That was one thing about Jimmy. He was very protective of his kid brother. No one messed with Alan when Jimmy was around. I remember a time when we were in the kicking donkey. A crowd of us having a high old time. Jimmy has him fits with a joke he'd just finished telling. Then Alan said something stupid about Katie's outfit, and we all felt awkward. Sandra looked at Jimmy and said, You're a lucky guy, Alan. Alan got annoyed and started off on how poor he was and how difficult his studies were. Sandra interrupted, No, I just meant you're lucky to have Jimmy as your brother. We all knew what she meant. The accident happened 18 months ago. Maybe two years. Just round the corner from here it was, on one of those freezing winter days when there's ice everywhere. I was coming out of a corner shop when I noticed a commotion on the other side of the road. A car was out of control and skidding along the pavement, heading straight towards ten or twelve people queuing at a bus stop. One of them spotted it, yelled out and leapt into the road. They all scattered. All except one, scarf up to his ears, oblivious to the world, lost in his iPod. Dangerous those things. It was Alan. No sooner had I recognised him than I saw Jimmy. Seems he was cooing with Alan and had jumped without realising that Alan hadn't moved. The car, Red Fiesta it was, was doing about 15 miles an hour, but steady. I could see the driver, a woman, gripping the wheel, rigid with fear. She must have had her foot on the brakes, locking the wheels. People were screaming at Alan, but he didn't hear them. There was no time for Jimmy to get to his brother. But as the car drew level with him, he yanked the door open, pushed the woman aside and grabbed the wheel, steering it towards the road. 
It was just enough for the car to veer off its course and hit the stanchion of the bus shop and shudder to a halt. Then, it was as if time slowed down. With the momentum of the skid, the rear of the car swung round and it looked to me as if the car was climbing, like a crab up the column of the bus stop. It got so far, then, ever so slowly, it toppled onto its side. Jimmy suddenly saw that the car was falling onto him and tried to leap back. He didn't quite make it and his legs were pinned under the mass of crumpled metal. I was one of the first to reach the car. It was pandemonium. The woman driver was screaming until they took her out from the other side. It was shock. She'd barely a scratch. Jimmy must have been in agony. It was about ten minutes before the ambulance arrived and they gave him painkillers. And a good thirty minutes before they got the wreck moved off him. In all that time he hardly made a sound. Although his breathing was laboured. Alan was in shock. He couldn't believe what had happened. I found myself comforting him as much as Jimmy. Well, that was a while back. Jimmy lost both legs above the knee. He's still in the rehab hospital. I've been to see him a few times. Don't like those places much, to be honest. But Jimmy's amazing. So positive. He's in a wheelchair, but he's already trying out metal legs and has great plans for his future. Alan went to see Jimmy a few times, but hasn't been for a while. He doesn't find it easy. He told me one day that if one more person tells him he's lucky, he'll thump him. He's working now, something in finance, doing well for himself. But it's almost like now Jimmy's a hero to everyone. He's no longer Alan's brother. I think Alan will find it tough to be grateful to Jimmy for the rest of his life. Luck isn't always good. And even good luck doesn't always deliver what you expect. Still, nice to talk to you. Enjoy your walk. Cheers. Carry on along the path and down the hill. Go through the underpass, and when you emerge, take the path on the left into Brandling Park. When the path meets another that leads to a second underpass, pause for a moment. Inspiration from the Strangest Places by Dawn McNeil All my life I've done things for other people. Everything I had achieved, I had achieved for other people. My parents assumed I would study A-levels and then go to university, so I did. They always thought I'd be a teacher, so I applied, went to the interview, and tried my hardest to get in. Luckily, I didn't. The only problem was how to tell them. I spent three weeks pretending I hadn't heard anything yet, because I didn't want to tell them that I'd failed. I know what would happen when I did. They wouldn't look at me. They would turn away, and they would pretend that everything was alright, that I was bound to be able to go somewhere else. I shouldn't just give up because one place said no, but I could see it in their eyes, heard the disappointment in their voices. It was tearing me apart inside. How much longer could I do this? Live a life I didn't want, fulfill dreams that weren't mine to begin with. I tried to think of what I was going to do with my life, but in all honesty I didn't know what I wanted, or even if I wanted to stay where I was. I've never been very good at planning things out. I act on impulse, but impulse doesn't work when you're planning your life. I'm sure I had the same goals as thousands of people around the world. A nice home, a family, but not yet. There are too many things I haven't done, too many places I haven't seen, things I've yet to experience. Then I hear my mother's voice in the back of my mind, telling me that if I don't make up my mind soon, I'm going to be 30 before I know it, and I still won't know what I want, and I will end up like her, regretting the chances I didn't take, opportunities I watched go by. But those are her opportunities, not mine. 
Why is it so hard for her to understand that I need to be able to make my own mistakes? To take my own chances and learn from them? It's the only way I'm going to figure out exactly what I want out of my life. How many people really know what they want until they find a source of inspiration which points them in the right direction? There are people that will spend their whole life searching and never discover what they're truly meant to do. But that doesn't mean they've failed. Surely they're the ones who are free to go where they want and be what they choose. Sometimes the best discoveries are the ones you don't make. I've lost count how many times I've gone over this in my head. Lying on my back on a clear day in a quiet corner of the park, taking in everything around me, watching the dogs run through the leaves that lay scattered on the ground, while a small child chases them, struggling to keep up with their incredible speed. The teenager on the park bench with nothing to do and nowhere to go. My mind drifts slowly off, thinking back to when I was that age. How simple life seemed then. There was nothing overly complicated about it at all. Good friends were all where you needed them. If you could rely on them, they could get you through anything. The wind begins to moan, and the last of the leaves clinging to the branches with all the strength they have. Finally give in, and let the breeze whisk them away. I watched them mesmerised as they danced across the now empty landscape, twisting and turning, composing delicate shapes for mere seconds before dissolving into another. Constantly moving, constantly changing, creating something new and more beautiful than the last. As suddenly as they came together, they break apart, dozens falling to the ground, while a few float through the air, disappearing off into the distance, leaving behind a lasting impression that would affect me for the rest of my life. I realised that day that the only thing I wanted in life was to be free, free to say and do as I choose, and not to have someone else choose for me. I want the freedom to make my own mind up to get to know myself for who I really was. I was safe to say I wasn't happy being me, just following too proud, because that's what everyone expected of me. It's what everyone expects of each other. It's those that take their chances and are prepared to try and fail to try again that stand out and will be remembered when they are gone. Suddenly thoughts come rushing at me from every direction, like hands grabbing at you from all sides, trying to hold on to you, trying to pin you down and place a weight on your shoulders. I don't recall every little detail I decided upon that night. But some of it I still remember to this day. To be wise and old, you must first be young and foolish. To lead, you must follow. To talk, you must listen. To teach, you must learn. To fail, you must try. To be courageous, you must be fearful. To be free, you must be restrained. To inspire, you must be inspired. The freedom I wanted was one bound by rules and social order. The inspiration I needed was something already inside of me. You just need something simple and uncomplicated to bring it out of me, and to give me something real to focus on. And when I forgot, or I get frustrated, I think back to that day. The day when I became a stronger person, able to stand on my own, rooting my feet to the ground and standing tall. No longer did I need a hand to hold, like the leaf that no longer needed the branch or the support of the trunk. It needed the wind to be free. All I needed was the freedom to be comfortable. Take the path through the underpass into Exhibition Park. Pause in front of the bandstand. I Miss Her by V.S. Adams I play my grandmother's memory loss in a game for closeness. Gene Richards, she says. I was thinking about him the other day. He wasn't at the funeral, was he? I say, because we had this conversation when I called him yesterday. 
and I want to both speed over it and humour her about the things she still finds important. She frets. As a woman of a certain generation who has only had sons, and who has as a result only daughters-in-law. If I'm sick, who will care for me? She asks and flicks through the television channels with the remote, as if there might be an answer on the screen. I reach out and take her hand in mine. I will, I say. She shrugs. My great-aunt, my grandmother's sister, sang in their brother's band. They went round the local dance halls, playing the hits of the day, while couples jitterbugged and drank warm, sweaty glasses of gin and lemonade. My grandmother liked dancing with the Americans because they knew the best moves. They all walked home in splintering groups and kissed in moonlit doorways, thinking that the world might end tomorrow. Not all the Americans left at the end of the war. Some of them married my grandmother's friends. One great-uncle brought home a French girl. My grandmother stopped work at the local factory and helped her sister in the local shop. After marriage, there was no time for my great-aunt to sing. I miss her, says my grandmother, and I nod along with her to show a sympathy I don't feel. My great-aunt died before I was born, something like a heart attack. She screamed, and her tongue stuck out, and her eyes went black, and then she was gone. My grandmother drove for a solid nine hours to make it there to help her nieces lay her out. They had three brothers, and they're all dead now too. A saxophone, piano and accordion laid down and covering in dust. When my grandmother hears music, she cries. Every note is a memory, and not every memory is welcome. Make me some tea. I go into the kitchenette and fill with the power cord for the kettle. I want a biscuit. There aren't any in the tin. So I say I'm going to the shops, but she's already chatting away to the presenter on the television, telling him she likes his new sweater. When I was very small and sent to visit my grandparents, they would drive me across the fourth road bridge. My granddad would drop me and my grandmother off at the end. Turn the car around, drive back over, then park and read the paper. Even on a still day, by the time my grandmother and I reached the end of the bridge, my hair would be snarled into knots. My grandmother carried a comb in her handbag, and I'd stand and twitch from one foot to the other while she sorted me out. If I didn't complain too much, I was allowed an ice cream, even in winter. My granda smoked woodbines, and a whirl of smoke would come out and greet us when he rolled down the window to shout his ice cream order. It was always strawberry he wanted, but he still shouted. Then we'd sit in the car and eat our ice creams, and then we'd drive home. I lock my grandmother in her flat when I go out for the biscuits. It's a brisk afternoon, so I take the long route through the park. I hopscotch on the tarmac. We haven't walked the fourth row bridge in years. I count the years as I jump, then soak a shoe in the wet puddle at the edge of the grass. Like a child, I'm satisfied by the sensation at first, then annoyed. I played the flute in a marching band so when my parents went to my grandfather's funeral. The procession ended with fireworks I couldn't see. The light rain and the heat made my woolen tights itch while I did as I was told, and marched on the spot, staring straight ahead. The park and the bandstand are empty today when I pass them, but I scratch my leg in tribute. There's a dog sitting by an empty bench, and it runs off when I lean down to pat it. It doesn't come back. The phone calls generally come at noon, but she was late today. I don't know why. I haven't seen you for so long, she said. I agreed. The blind in my bedroom is broken. I'll fix it this afternoon, I said, and wrote on the back of my hand to remember to bring a screwdriver with me. And milk.
Mary wrote to me this week, she said, but I can't find the letter. That letter has been lost for at least five years now, by my reckoning. I forgot the screwdriver, but by the next time, she'd forgotten I was coming. I wrote it in my diary and washed my hand at her sink. The soap smelled of roses. I can still smell the roses on my skin now, lifting my hand to my face and feeling how cold my nose is. Winter roses. The bushes in the park are cut back, and the trees make lace patterns against the sky. My nose is wet with the start of a cold. I sniff and shake water off my shoe. My room at my parents' house is still bright yellow. My grandmother helped me paint it when my parents went away one weekend. I told her about school and she told me about being in service at my age. It's a rare memory. Sometimes I think I've invented it, that I wanted something to hang on to now she's retreated into the past. I leave an uneven line of footprints leading up to the shop. On the way back I can still feel the creeping damp up the side of my sock, but the shoe doesn't leave a wet mark. Facing the bandstand, take the path that is now behind you. It runs alongside the motorway you came under and away from the steps you have walked past. Pause halfway along. Our Fingertips Touch by PJ Moyer Okay, so the day is bright and good. I try to be optimistic, to keep cheerful, to stay on top of things. I text everyone and we meet in the park. Frisbee. This is a perfect day for Frisbee. Only it isn't because it is winter and even this early the sun is low in the sky and we squint as we jump and we try and catch. Heroic leaps, dramatic dives. We don't mess about, we go for it. This is more exercise than most of us take in a week, so we breathe hard, sending vapour up. Little plumes leave us as we run, run backwards, dodge the dogs, dodge the trees, and time it just right to snatch the gold disc from the sky. I fall. I fall so many times my bruises will have bruises. My mum, she'll have something to say about this. She's not so keen on mud. But mum, I tell her, but mum, it is better than sitting around all day. I am looking for a job. I am. But I can't do that all the time. Give me a break. I will take these muddy trackies outside, scrape off the worst of it, wait till they dry, shake off the rest of it. She wants to be grateful I'm not at the crack house. As if. She wants to be grateful I'm not nicking stuff, knocking over old ladies for their pensions. I could. I can run fast. Davy's telling jokes. Old school jokes, knock knock jokes. What do you call a man? Jokes. He's funny even when he's not telling jokes. He's got the knack. He makes girls laugh. And it's true, of course it's true. You make them laugh, they love you. I make them smile, they like me. It's good, but it's not good enough. I want to tell him. Save your breath for the frisbee, mate. Come on, focus, stop messing about. But this is meant to be fun. He's having fun. There's this big dog now that's trying to join our team. We keep tripping over him, and the more we do it, the happier he is. Barking, wagging his tail, jumping about. He's good too. One direct catch and one on a bounce, but he's rubbish at throwing. He's a dog. Julie says, whose dog is this? Is she a bit scared of him? Julie doesn't look like she's going to be scared of anything. She's got those big golden hoop earrings, and her hair is perfect. How is her hair perfect after all this running around? She says the earrings are ironic. I get it. But you couldn't tell just looking at her. 
I don't want people thinking she's the kind of person who would wear earrings like that. Cheap. Like leftover tinsel in August. I think she's scared. Scared of the dog. She's looking around, trying to see which person in the park owns him. Is it the lady on the bench, ignoring everything, reading a book? Is it that big bloke with the tattoos just wearing a t-shirt, even though it's getting cold now? Getting really cold when we stop running and gather to figure out what to do with the dog. Tattoo bloke walks off. It's not his dog. Or if it is, it's decided not to go with him. No one is calling for it. All the other dogs seem attached to people, either on the lead like they should be, or just floating at dog distance, circling around, chasing things, but then going back to whoever it is they belong to. Not this dog, though. Crouched down with his paws on our frisbee, having a good chew. Me and Judy reached down at the same time to look at his collar. Our heads nearly crashed together, but that's not all. Our fingertips touch. Did you do it on purpose? Did I? Oh God, I blush. Not cool, Muppet. The sun is behind me. She won't see, so it's okay. Okay, so the day is bright and good. Continue along the path until you reach a bowling green. Take the path on the right and carry on until you reach the moor. Take the track on the left that runs behind the park and Red Roof Museum. You are now free to explore the moor whilst listening to the stories. There is no need to pause until you reach the far side. Your destination is Grandstand Road at the opposite side of the moor. After this picture, you will walk back across the moor and exit through Exhibition Park. If you prefer your own route, then feel free and catch back up with the walk at the lake. Unwind by Greta Brewer Backen. Today he's just going to run. The path disappears where his eyesight cannot reach. Empty of people, bikes and joggers and whatever else. Cows. Sometimes there are cows, big furry ones that don't bother looking up at anyone anymore. They don't mind if anyone runs, least of all him. Today he can do at least one thing right. It has nothing to do with copiers or filing or even pouring coffee before the liquid is scalded blackly to the bottom of the pot. He went at that thing with steel wool until the pot broke apart in his hands and then he couldn't even put a plaster on correctly. Miss Arbite gave him one of her looks, the flared nostrils and the wrinkly pinch to her mouth and for a moment he was honestly afraid she would make him buy a new coffee pot for the break room. But he can just run. Run it off, run it out. The traffic whistles by on his right, and two girls overtake him on the other side of the fence, talking in loud American accents. Yank scars over their noses, shuffle hats, chafe gloved hands together as they walk. Bright pink with yellow and green dots on one pair. Nothing in the world could ever match that pattern, and it's wonderful. His palms hurt and his legs are freezing. But now he's running, passing the girls up again breathing frosted air down his throat and into his lungs. He imagines he is chasing Miss Arbite, that she is furry and chewing, and all the other cows have run her off, mooing insults at her swishy tail. The muttered stabs at Miss Arbite's humanity become too tiring as he picks up sp He hasn't the breath for such bile. Blood has seeped through the plaster padding, a hovering dark spot that flashes into his periphery with every swing of his arms. Miss Arbite would not be pretty white with large, lovely black patches, or chestnut orange. She could never have the appropriate eyelashes, or if she did, they would be stuck together and scraggly. She'd have tufts of her hair in all the wrong places, 
and manage in all the right ones. And she'd clop gracelessly because she'd never learn how to work all those legs. She skims the side of a pothole filled with water and sees the puff of clouds in it for an instant, the gnarled branches of a tree. Melanie will be home at six, and they'll fix tuna casserole together. He'll slice mushrooms for the salad and great double Gloucester. Melanie will tell him what she did was wrong at her interview, and he will argue, because Melanie is never as harried as she fears she is. One night, she'll come home with her mouth agape and tell him she is employed again. But it's only half four now, and he's running fast enough that the sweat blows right off his forehead, and his ears ache with the cold. His eyes are full of water, and he can't find his anger anymore. A fuzzy soft cow appears in the distance, amongst other fuzzy, fuzzy soft cows, bent to the earth, plucking grass with its teeth. It looks up, sighting him down the way. Moo! Miss Arbite pleads. Her shoes are too pointy. Maybe her hooves are actually shaped like that. He runs faster. The dip and swell of the path, slapping of his trainers becomes a pulse, pumping and warm. Dirt by Pete McGrath I stand here in contemplation of a bleak landscape. How can one describe it? Flat, uninspiring, dull, words that are easy, and a glance could indeed sum up my thoughts. But surely these are superficial and not worthy of a species at the top of the evolutionary tree. What then of the lives of people that cross this barren, flat and unappealing vista? What beauty do they see that I may have missed? What limitations do I suffer that blinker and constrict my ability to enthuse about this place? The very thought of limitations makes me strive to open my mind and shake the shackles of such gelatinous thought. My mind quickens, breaking free of its morass, and I search for better, more uplifting ways to parade its majesty. But shortly thereafter it slows, becoming deliberately keen to examine individual aspects before casting to one side, still unworthy. What of the buildings in the far distance? What monument to architectural art are they? How about the mass that rises tentatively, as though a finger pointing to the heavens? No, no. Still limited. Limited, I say. And then I have it. Why, it's not the landscape that is unexciting, it's me. By what right do I call this barren, flat and unappealing? I that have been here for less than a tick of time. I that will be then dust leaving no echo of my existence. The arrogance of man. No, the arrogance of me. I have passed such superficial judgments in what is in reality a blink of our planet's geological eye. I begin to question the sloppiness of my thinking still further. Let not my vision be constrained by mere time. Let me reach backwards towards the dawn of creation. Let us bring to life the theories of science, for that's all they can be. No concrete evidence, no incontrovertible proof. Just a theory from a parasitic, minuscule virus presently connecting this time and space. What majesty would we have witnessed at the coalescing of matter within the void? How could one imagine the formation of a planet from the detritus of solar expansion? Could we visualize the cataclysmic impact of countless half-formed asteroids? The colossal heat generated from this embryonic fusion the formation of great expanses of magma seas. Did sound or colour exist, or was it language that gave existence to such triviality? Is it possible to grasp the enormity of that conflagration of, or imagine the eons that it used up and cast aside? 
What then when space was effectively vacuumed clean, no further fuel for its ravenous engine? What part did my unassuming patch of land play in all that glory? Was it a major player in some pyroclasmic display, or just a simple bystander, a witness to an event? Was there hunger, or was there desire when the furnace needed more? What then, as then the planet began to cool, could I possibly imagine the contraction as the heat dissipated, producing the monumental tectonic pressures within its mantle? Observed the release of gases that jet high above the surface, transforming into vapour and then water. The rains and storms that last for generation after generation, flooding the earth. See it seeping into every crevice, developing into mineral-rich seas that will eventually bring forth life. How far has my little speck of land travelled in all the time it has soared imperiously above the plains or been submerged below newborn seas? But life, that is the key. For what use would all those mighty events be without life? Indeed, how many varieties of life has my patch of land nurtured? What multiplicity of forms has it witnessed, and whose very essence has been absorbed and been remade? Can I imagine the imprint of a dinosaur's foot? Yes, for human ingenuity and thirst for knowledge has made that possible. But what about the myriad life forms that existed in quiet companionship? For nearly five billion years our planet has formed and reformed, bearing silent witness to an explosion of life that has teemed over and within. Here I stand, born of this planet, and I say to any that may hear, this is not simply a piece of dirt. Eyes Closed by Jane Thomas I walk here every day. I have always walked here, on the inconvenient grass in the dark night, moonlit, starlit, orange-blue-lit night. I have fallen here alone and lain cold and dying. Death calls and sits a while, gets up and leaves. You are ultimately alone. I have asked many times, is this when I go? There is never a reply. I have come to the conclusion that death is only the finger puppet of time. He has no influence to bring to bear, cannot affect the great decisions over our lives any more than we can ourselves. On the whole, it suits me to be alone. I look at open spaces where I can see people approach from a distance. Now it is a good place to be. A comforting thought, given that now is the only place we can be. I used to fret to be somewhere else, to run at the future as though it mattered. One day I scaled the wall of my mind and saw the infinite landscape of a shining crystal evermore. Its colours and far-diminishing horizons drew me but my fear of freedom held me back. Now I only look at the edge of my consciousness and know that, behind the black-boned winter trees separating me from the blue, the crystal land lies waiting, glittering. Slipping into liminal spaces, I look at the spider spinning, the cow chewing, the movement of the indecisive ox-eye dazes in the air of summer, and everywhere the seeming flat land of grass, that inconvenient grass. Now a smooth black band traverses the grassland. It curves, pretending not to be predetermined. I know that the determined grass will split its edges and crack open its smugness. It has been put there for convenience. It will help people to cross the grass. They will travel faster. Word will get out that the smooth path is there and more of them will come. But few come in the dark. If they see me dying in the grass, they do not stop. None leave the path. And if they did, they would step over me, another inconvenience of the grass.
At night, I know the grass is green, but my eyes cannot tell. Eyes closed, I can see the green, but open them and the grass is electric monochrome. Near the convenient path, lights shine sulphur, and the cows turn their heads away from the outlined veins of red inside their eyelids. While they sleep, their stomachs continue to churn and ferment. While they sleep, people out of sight also sleep, and on the other side of the world, fishermen take sun-sleek tuna aboard their boats. Crazy people dance naked in the rain, crying aloud to God to help them. But here the grass simply hides its greenness, in the dark lit night, and I wait for death to visit me once again. My mother gave birth to me in the usual dolorous way, but outside the window she could see only sky. She held me up to the sky, and my first infant view was of infinity. All my life infinity has been my goal. The infinity of a diminishing horizon under a stupendous domed sky. I have heard that at sunset on the summit of K2, the shadows stretch for a thousand miles. We can see a thousand miles. We can see the earth curve under us if we were allowed to. Here, in the inconvenient grass, I can see above me the infinity of sky. The dark earth borders me. But I have to stay here for now. I don't trust death to find me if I soar in search of far horizons and I have no way of knowing which visit will be his last. In the clear lit night I can lie on my back in the inconvenient grass. Lie so still for so long that the universe moves above me perceptibly in its great unending arc. Once I lay in the desert of North Africa and watched the thick girdle of the Milky Way brushing its mountain tops. So dense was it that the infinite sky was clouded with stellar particles and hidden from me. And then, as time passed gently on the unfeeling breeze, an intensity of shining indigo emerged, and the bright moon shone sunlight over the rocks until daybreak. I cried then and lowered my eyes within the demarcation of the circling hills, those signifiers of constraint and of our boundedness to the earth. I walked for two weeks through that arid landscape, learning the subtleties of shade and tone, stopping to watch the tiny plants growing without sustenance, and wading through a sea of locusts in flight, blind to my presence and the inconvenience of flying through me. My eyes learned to distinguish the smallest variation of brown, mauve, blue and green emerged from the gentle brownness until the day I was blinded with green. At the foot of Awadi, a massive well of concrete blocks rose crude grey. Behind the startling scarlet brooms of pomegranate and towering rosemary, soft grey desert, coloured and shrouded in mauve scent, stretched blinding green terraces of irrigated vegetation, my senses soothed by the muted miles of desert, the ancient sulphurite rocks recoiled from that bursting wetness. I don't like the wet. I still go walking if it rains, but I don't stay out long, and I don't let myself become distracted by small interests, nor, understandably, do I lie down. But tonight there is no rain. The sky is clear, and dry. The moon is nearly full, sucking the high sea up the beach. Its far retreat will leave a thousand tiny objects behind. Tomorrow I will go and see what they are. I prefer the sea in daylight. At night its slick reflection unnerves me. Like a half-seen face in dark glass, it is sly and sneaks around the edges of your eyes. There are banks of fat clouds sitting on the horizon tonight. Blazing moonlight back and forth and flickering strobes through the agitated branches above me. The bowl of the tree is nubby on the nubs of my back, painful now.
My legs lie on the inconvenient platinum grass, black, and lengthen in the moon shadow of the sycamore. Tonight is a sort of night that death drops by. I am rooted to this ugly tree, its vile bark snagged into my back, its shadow engulfing mine. I try to lift my arm to make a mark of darkness against the shining of the grass, but the old weakness ties it down and I begin to die. Waiting for death patiently as always, I remember the last time I walked on the beach in winter. Storms had cleaned away the flotsam from the flattened sand, but along an untrodden mile lay hundreds of tiny dead jellyfish, fluted like old-fashioned puddings, perfectly watched and stranded fifty feet from the doodling wavelets. If you are following the route, you'll have now reached Grandstand Road. Turn right and walk along the path beneath the trees. Again, walk as you listen. Winds of Change by Dawn McNeil You can try and avoid. Walk with your head down and you won't see it coming. But it is. The path you're on only goes so far. It seems to stretch for miles. A strip of sun-baked darkness roaming across the land. Twisting and turning its silent, deadly spell. It knows your, where your journey tonight will end. It knows that this time things will be different. Things will change. It knows this because change is inevitable. There is nothing you can do to stop it. You can fight for things to stay the same, but they never will. Stopping for a moment, you watch those lost souls inching along the road in their metal coffins wondering if any of them know what is really waiting for them around the corner. Or are they as clueless as the rest of us? You know that soon you will join them, because it is what you do every day. You watch them and they watch you. Everyone watching each other, looking, judging, comparing your life to theirs. Whose is better? All this happens in an instant, and then that stranger you have never met, and probably never will, disappears from your life becoming a vague shadow on the landscape. Your mind drifts back to where you are going, plans you have made, promises you intend to keep. But it is not so easy. Plans once made unravel quickly. Words are exchanged, thoughts provoked, emotions engaged. The only question you have to ask yourself now, are you ready for this? Things are about to be set in motion. Do you run from it, or do you fight it? That is a choice you make alone. Hiding your true feelings from the world, a choice you may regret later. Laying everything out in the open, a choice you might regret now. Emotions are powerful weapons, weapons you can't control, that part inside of you where your deepest, most venerable thoughts lie, ready to be awoken. Thoughts you put behind you, memories you pray would go away. They never do. Slowly you feel them crawling to the front of your mind. Those things you wish you'd said in times gone by. Things you have avoided saying until now. And the words you hoped you would never say. A fire lights inside of you, burning your fragile body as it rises. Suddenly everything becomes clear and you know what you have to do. No longer can you avoid the confrontation. The time to make your stand is now. The place is here. The world will defeat you if you let it. The game will be over before it starts. There is no reset button. And no delete key to your life. A face stares back at you. Ready to unleash all its rage upon you. For an instant you do not know it. 
those cold, uninviting eyes, hollow and naught but ash, the smoking cinders of a faded sparkle, the innocence of years gone by. The only explanation for where you stand, what you would normally be afraid to do, all that is gone. The only thing that remains is the fire inside you. Hope leads to fear, fear to despair, despair to anger, and when you can take no more and you reach that wall you cannot climb, anger to rage, wrath and ruin. The world dissolves around you, falling away on all sides. Then there is no one but you, and the demon you face, the tormentor of your nights, the one who takes your dreams from you. No more. The rage rushes out of you, like a wave crashing against the shore, sweeping away all that lay before you, so violent, so true. Your rage knows when it is needed. Its ferocity and bitterness well deserved. It knows too when its job is done. No longer will a battle be fought in your mind over the right thing to do, and so your rage subsides. Gives way new hope, new enchantment and new dreams. It is only now that you realise that the face staring back at you was no stranger, but someone you knew. The face staring back was you. A road less travelled lays ahead. The road you walked before will always be behind you. Like an angel on your shoulder, it knows where you have been. It knows where you want to get to. The choice to walk a new path, I leave to you. Care by Christine Burkhart Look at the building. What do you see? Windows stacked six high, looking over the moor. Beige brick, trees. You might see flats. You might see apartments. Either way, it is a plain-looking building next to a large, empty field. It could be anywhere, but it's here just as you are. Inside, there's breathing, talking, eating, sleeping, kissing, loving. Inside, there are lovers, friends, families, and people like Maggie. She has never been married, you know. She never had children. She is too young to move off to some old folks' home, play card games and shuffleboard. She's too old to fit in with the neighbours. Her hair is greying and curly. A lock of it falls over her forehead in a way that should be irritating. But Maggie never notices it. She doesn't seem to care. There's also people like Barry. He has thick glasses. His hair is longer than it should be and curls in and out. No matter how he combs it, it won't be tamed. He chews his nails, bites his lip, and if you try to talk to him, he doesn't realise that he's being addressed. His eyes get very wide when he's nervous. They water. The rare person who catches his smile finds it contagious. Barry is younger than Maggie, considerably younger, but he's in love with her. You can dream up any number of reasons why. It's because she moves through the world with grace, flowing along like water. She smiles at children and small animals and looks twenty again. Her laughter is musical. It trills high then low, sharp as fingers over the keys of a piano. Her face, weathered as it is, is beautiful with age. She takes in the world with a soft, tired smile, which creases up her cheeks and eyes and forehead. Barry loves Maggie because she's sharp, uncompromising and independent. Or he loves her for something else entirely. 
go ahead and choose the Y. Pick whatever seems most appropriate. Barry often contemplates taking Maggie passionately into his arms. I think he wants to kiss her and tell her how much he cares. The only thing that stops him? The knowledge that confessions made mid-passionate embrace only happen in silly romance films. Of course, the more he thinks they should be brave and plainly say, Maggie, I love you, the more he fears his biggest fear, rejection. Maggie might be shocked to hear of his attachment. She might even be a little afraid. She could disbelieve it, find it funny or pathetic. Worse yet, she could scorn it. Barry, trying to win her love. Disgusting. Let me tell you, Maggie's the sort of woman that meets your eyes unflinchingly. She will never look away first. Add that to Barry's fear of rejection, and you see his conundrum. Now imagine one day, Maggie's arms are loaded down with supermarket bags, and the lift is out of order. Again. Barry corners her and offers to help. He carries her bags up four flights of stairs. He's trying to show that he cares. There at her door. He puts the bags down as she digs for her keys. He reaches up and brushes that bit of hair off her forehead. There is only one question Barry really wants answered in this world. Is Maggie's hair as soft as it looks? I imagine his face, when all is said and done, is equally filled with delight and despair. He's done it. He can't take it back. Of course, the story would change drastically if Maggie were a married woman, especially if she were happily married. What would Barry be then? A homewrecker? A fool? It doesn't matter. Maggie's unmarried, but her heart isn't free. Look at her face, the way it's hardened. The line of her mouth has gone tight. She turned her back on him, has told him to leave. Why? I have no idea. Perhaps she's suspicious. She knows that care is covetous, selfish, it's base. There's always an agenda behind it. Besides, who cares for someone less attractive, silly, messy, foul-mouthed or stupid? Who cares to care for someone much younger, someone much older? Care is such a waste of time. Nobody in the building witnesses the incident. You'll hardly find a single tenant looking out of any of these windows, even on the rare sunny day. Life passes them by without note. Barry remembers the way Maggie's hair feels. It's the only thing he has. He remembers the way she narrowed her eyes. He wishes that would fade. And the pain. Care is so hard to cure. I am one that knows. But tell me, has care ever afflicted you? Turn left and back onto the moor at the junction. The next few pieces will play without instructions. Your destination is the lake in Exhibition Park. This is across the other side of the moor and close to where you entered it. Follow the moor path straight over a crossroads and then take the path that veers left after this. Lust by Pete Hunter Sometimes all I want is sex. No confusion and no complication. Pure and unadulterated physical desire. Not to own or play with power, just to have awareness of somebody else's pleasure at abandonment of inhibition. Sweet and fragrant, supple joys of living flesh on fire. I recall a girl with whom I'd walk out every evening. We would fall beneath the dusk from talking to selfish lovemaking, and silently we'd roll and tumble, trusting to our skin and fingers, mouths and tongues and greedy breathing.
unselfconscious, unpretentious, underneath the evening surface, rising to a climax with a semi-conscious cry. Then quietly and gratefully, after lust subsided, we would curl around each other as the moon crept up the sky. On those sexy summer evenings, dozing to the sigh of wind in treetops, watching half-awake, distorted shadows shyly slip across our melted bodies, I felt warm and safe and physically satisfied, and nothing could confuse me. I was sure of my existence. If I died, I died in rapture. If I lived, my life was greater. And I wish that I could lie, contented in that field forever, in the heated realm of pleasure. I wake up some mornings now, my manhood full of lust and frenzy, awoken at the bidding of an unremembered sweet and subtle dream. It pushes at my duvet in hungry, vital fury, as the golden light of spring paints shadows on the walls, and as the trees hush in the wind, a wavering and tempting memory of passion sweat and sun-soaked summer's evening's call. I am almost in that field again, drinking from the salty essence of the desperation of those distant teenage walks. Naked Smile by Nina Singh The wind was extremely intense on that fateful evening. We planned to meet in the usual place, where it was quiet and away from prying eyes. I had left in a hurry. It was always hectic getting away. As I drove through congested traffic, I couldn't help but feel like a secret agent. It was our secret, our thing, my creation. When I arrived, the place was deserted. This was how I liked it. I began to walk. I had no idea that everything was going to change. I hate change. It was not part of the plan. It shouldn't have happened. It was getting dark, which made it all the more exciting. We needed to make plans. It had been a while since we had been together. That was all I wanted. The wind was blowing. It was pushing me away. This was a sign. I wrapped myself tighter into my designer jacket. I knew I should have brought my coat. I could see her. The wind whirling up her skirt. This revealed the part of her legs that I adored. The thrill of this made my desire our time together. As soon as possible. It was always hard to plan this. It wasn't her company. It was the thrill of the control. When I want. Most of the time where I wanted. She was always eager to please. Naked, that was all I wanted. But I had to go through these pointless meetings. Suddenly she was there in front of me. I never knew what to say to start with. She always created noise from nothing. The only word that I wanted to hear was naked. I wanted her naked and smiling, so easy to satisfy I could do what I wanted. Silent, this was going on for longer than usual. I hate having my time wasted. She had been crying, bloody hell. Whispering, that is how it began. Of course I could only hear the wind. Why whisper in the wind? White beams appeared, the path illuminated. Bright lights in us. The peace was about to be shattered. Finally she finished what she had to say. A fire started to stir in my throat. Quickly I became sweaty. How was I supposed to react? I stood there bewildered, just staring. Naked. That was what it was all about. No more naked smiles. That's for damn sure. Whisper Your Reasons by P.J. Moyer She was always soft, soft in the head, 
what my mum called daft as a brush, but not to her face. She'd scuttle up our street, bag in hand, pass at the ready and jump off the bus, off to work. But she had no job. She was just too soft, soft in the head. She'd just pretend, scuttle up the street, speaking softly, talking to herself in whispers. Whisper woman, we called her. Me and my sister, taunting her behind her back. Mum got cross. Look, she said. People are different. No one likes a bully. Leave her alone. Leave her in peace. Yes, we said, but we never did. Lady, lady, why do you whisper? Is your voice box busted? Whisper, woman, where are you going? Why do you get on the bus when you know you've got no job? Whisper, woman, would just look at us and say, Shush. We'd shout, we'd laugh, we'd follow her around. We'd sneak up to her and yell, What? We can't hear you. What did you say? And she'd smile and shoo us away, me and my sister. Whisper woman disappeared. We didn't see her for weeks. We missed her. We took to whispering to each other, whispering our secrets, whispering our way through homework, whispering on the bus, going to school. We were the Whisper Sisters. Then it spread. All the girls whispered. All the girls whispered all the time. The teachers got cross. The boys tried joining in, but they sounded stupid. Even more stupid than usual. Even more stupid than Whisper Woman. Where was Whisper Woman? We missed her. Mum, have you seen Whisper Woman? We asked quietly when we were exasperated, when we could bear it no longer. Who? said Mum. Too loud. A shock of sound in our hushed-down world. Do you know? The lady that goes on the bus that hasn't got a job, that talks to herself, where's she gone? Mum didn't know. That was wrong. Mum was meant to know everything. Always. Maybe you scared her away, the poor duck, she said. Maybe she got bored with you running after her and shouting at her. How did Mum know about that? Ah, said Mum. I know everything. But you don't, we said. You don't know where a whisper woman is. We want her back. We miss her. Then it was the summer, and we forgot about the shushing and scuttling and the whispering as we lost ourselves in long days and long grass and longing to grow up and leave. Mum lost her temper. You girls could do with some work. If you want to be so grown up, come and help. Laundry. Chores in the garden. Housework duties. She made us a rotor. Washing up, sweeping up, cleaning shoes, taking out the bins. But we do all the tasks together, me and my sister. It doesn't take two of you to take out the bins, said Mum. And we do it together anyway, just to annoy her. And there, out on our street when we're taking out the bins for the last time before school starts up again, there is Whisper Woman, back again, walking along with her bag. Quick, we say, running after her. Let's catch up. Let's tell her we've missed her. Let's say sorry. Let's see if she's still whispering. Let's ask if she's got a job now. Whisper Woman looks over her shoulder and sees us coming. Hello, girls, she says, her voice clear and strong and true. Have you had a good summer? We stand there with our mouths open, me and my sister. We must have looked soft, daft. Whisper, woman, why aren't you whispering no more? Why did you always whisper before? Who, me? She said. Did I? Well, I suppose I must have had my reasons. Your mum got you helping, has she? Please give her my best. Tell her I said thank you. 
I'll be in to see her tomorrow like we planned. I can't wait to tell her all about it. And now I must rush. I've got a bus to catch. Live by Tony Witkowski. For reasons unsaid, this morning was no different than any other. Although a new decade had begun, and he was now a year older, Toby Quincy felt nothing, just as he trained himself to do. He woke before his alarm sounded, nothing unusual, and restlessly watched the minutes slowly turn over. The wind howled, clicking the tree branches against the window, as if they were urging to get up. The sweet aroma of rich coffee filled the room. The only hint of light came from the rising sun, which more persistently told Toby it was time to begin his day. Switching the alarm to off, before the ring could fill the room with its echo, Toby tossed his covers aside, reluctant to place his bare feet onto the cool hardwood floor. He winced as the cold air crept over his warm body, and quickly pulled on his sweats to preserve some of the heat. More slowly than usual, Toby crossed his bedroom to his bureau to slip into the rest of his running gear. A pair of old a burgundy stocking cap made of fleece he had gotten at market last week, and an old grey Oxford sweatshirt given to him by his father. He glimpsed a dark bottle of whiskey, spelled with no E, as meaningless thoughts filled over his head of what needed to be done that day, even though he knew it wouldn't happen. His only concern lied in the old man he saw sitting on the metal bench during his run every morning. It had taken 228 days for Toby to approach the old man. He remembered their first conversation precisely, and recalled as he stepped out the door to begin his jog. You're here every morning. Toby huffed out of breath for the man, without a glance in Toby's direction. Since 1999. The man spit out as if it habit, his voice unusually smooth for his age. Don't ask why. Taken off guard by the man's harshness, Toby had quickly contemplated walking away, but instead replied, You're not from here. I hear it in your voice. A moment passed before the man slowly turned to look at Toby, as he sat down on the opposite end of the bench from the man, and just as slowly the man returned to his gaze. Never before had someone intrigued Toby as this foreign, mysterious old man had at that moment. Likewise, up until that moment, the man had never wanted to be intriguing. As thick as the curiosity was that lingered in the space between the man and Toby, no words were spoken. For the next 23 days, Toby shared the bench with the old man, in silence. Only the simple acknowledgement that the other was present was shared between them. Each day the stairs became longer, and Toby's yearning for the man's next words grew deeper. I once had a girl, or should I say she once had me, the man softly recited on the 24th day. Toby waited for a moment before answering. Norwegian Wood, one of my favourite Beatles songs. You have good taste. He glanced over at the man to see the left corner of his mouth slightly lift into a crooked grin. You know why Lennon wrote that song? The man answered. Toby held his gaze on the man, praying the question had been rhetorical, but the man said nothing. For a split second, Toby was able to see the pain hidden behind the eyes of the man he found so fascinating. It was a pain not of loss, but of betrayal. A realisation occurred to Toby that the things the man allowed him to see were not routinely revealed. Those were things one had to earn. There were stories linked to the man's reasoning for his daily visit to the bench they had shared for the past three weeks. No, sir, I don't, Toby answered. 
Another two weeks passed before their conversation took place again. It was yesterday, Tony remembered. As he reflected on the incident, he reclaimed that this time he'd been the one to speak first. Changing the pace, Terry protested. We're more alike than you think. He paused, desperate for a response. Instead, the man replaced with a verbal response with a simple nod of approval. He continued, I should tell you. Tell me something, kid. What is the purpose of life? The man interrupted. Startled. Well, um, Toby cleared his throat and fought hard before he replied. I'd say to be happy. What would life be if you're not happy? Nah, I've come here every day for the past 11 years. Happy to do it. I know that's not it. It's something I haven't done my whole life, the man said. Although their eyes hadn't met once during the conversation, Toby knew the man had no intention of telling him what it was, and since it boggled his mind. As he wind down the sidewalk to the place where he was positive the man would be, his determination to ask what something was became overpowering. His anticipation increased exponentially as he slowed through a walk like he'd done the day before. He rounded the bench to the field in which the bench was located, anxious to see the man that was there every day. However, Toby soon discovered this morning was indeed different from any other morning and was halted to a dead stop in his tracks when the bench came into view. Unable to grasp the reality of the situation, he sprinted to the bench. The man who had been there for the past nine months of Toby's life was now gone. In his place lay a small note. As Toby picked it up to see what it was, he realised that the man wrote the answer to the very question he intended to ask that day. Written in capital long black letters, a single four-letter word compromised the entire note. It read, Live. You should now be facing the lake in Exhibition Park. Pause looking at the Red Roof Museum opposite. Fake by Megan Hockley. 23. 23 leaves floating on the river, slipping over my shattered and shimmering reflection. Curled, crisp, floating, floating, over, over. Biting breeze skittering, scattering 24, 25. Blowing me from the watching and landing me back here, upright beside the water. And so, and so. Which first? The left eye feels loose. It tells me it will go first. So I reach up and pull, quickly, easily at first. Then the inner corner, where there is most glue, resists. Resists and is free. This part is easy, like the end of every day. But letting the eyelash flutter from my palm and onto the surface of the water feels like loss. No good one without the other. Hand up, pull and peel. Out and floating on the air for just half a second, then floating on the water. Both. Gone. And now, scooping into the bra, fishing. One wobbling plastic thing. So warm it seems. Biological. So ugly, but such a satisfying plop as it flies and sinks. Fishing for the other, I smile in anticipation of the next plop. And why not the bra itself? Hard wire digging in my chest, wriggling arms into jumper, through straps, back into jumper, and the pink monstrosity of spiky lace stretched out there, now floating away like a clue in a murder. 
what else? Hand up to head, crisped hair and crispier pretend hair. Unpin, pull, untangle from the mass. Dead knotty tail of plastic made to look nearly real. It circles in the rippers and crawls away. The only part with pain, and it is pain. My own torturer, dragging nail off nail, plastic off keratin. Glue in hard lumps, ravaged nail beds, flakes falling, flying, floating, sinking. Now face closer, closer, closer to water, knees on gravel, hands wet, face wet. Coloured dribbles, dripping down, black and pink and green, streaking under eyes from cheeks and lips. And now I am all me. Am I there? Not quite reflected on the shaking, waving water. Has a protective layer been removed, and am I free? Calm light, gentle light, the aging day hiding me in its twilighting. The soil, the trees, the water, me. Walk clockwise around the lake. Listen to the next recording as you do. Used by Rupert Hopkins Ripples, reflections, stardust sprinkled, adorning the sentinel poplar trees, serpentine roots carve into the hedge river bank, marking time, their ring trunks recall heavy industry, the branch tips remember the steel furnaces belting out dragon flames, lighting up the night, the sound of workmen taking well-earned breaks, demonstrators passing by, jarrow hunger marchers, miners, fighting to save their pits and community. People out for a weekend stroll, staggering home after a heavy night embracing life, hearing the curlew cry, the chatter of a broody moorhen and her nest of chicks, a hawk overhead like a passing storm glide stifles birdsong. The space between the trees and the wind in the willow's river bank, toad of toad hall weaves an electronic symphony, Samples bars from the human league, and the trees feel a rush of that new wave energy haunting this river walk. After you have circled the lake, head for the children's play park. Come Back by Tony Witkowski Is it true what they say, that age is just a number? Or is it merely a saying we use to make ourselves feel young? Shielded behind cover-ups, hidden by false personalities. You're trying too hard. I know you are, but what am I? Was there a better comeback? Training wheels vanish, bare feet replaced by stilettos. You say you need to find yourself, so eager to lose your innocence. Envied by those who lost it, appalled by those who have it, remembered by those who are past it. Youth has no age, it is but a state of mind. Mirror images of joy on the faces of seesaw riders. Exhilarated laughter echoes down the slide. A sanctuary of bliss. When we come back here, we are all five years old. Walk past the play park and onto the main track that runs out of Exhibition Park. It is lined by trees. Follow this path as it turns right and goes under a bridge. Pass the skate park on your left and pause under the archway. Pain by Sherry Garcia Rangel They said I have to make my mind 
about the fact that now only one idea will define my life. I say they can shove it wherever it fits. Probably that would also be painful, as they think my life is going to be. Pain. I'm chronically defined as forever in pain. How pretty is that? They said I'm too young to have this, and I could see all the sorrow and pity in their faces. It didn't affect me. Maybe because I have too much pain in line to feel. I no longer feel humiliation. I think anyone in my condition would react the same way. I simply ignored what they said. It's not that I want to believe I won't be in pain. I had known it long before they gave me their professional diagnosis. Pain is not something you can ignore, you know. Try to tell pain to go get a life, to come back another time, or give it some money so it can buy an ice cream and leave you be. I just don't accept that pain is going to describe my life, to give it meaning. Because it doesn't, you know. It blocks meaning away. It takes the roots out of your feelings and leaves them in the side of the road to dry or rot. No, pain is not going to define me. To hell with it. I'm going to prove them wrong. I'm going to make pain my boyfriend. I'm going to love it so much it will leave me for being too clingy. I've been planning it for a while and I've written some ideas in my notebook. Mum says it's a good thing to be looking on the bright side of things. Now there isn't any. She doesn't know though. I'm not looking into the bright side of anything. Pain doesn't have a bright side. This isn't going to be like going to the dentist and getting a tooth removed. This is tiny knives through your veins, playing poke me with your organs, twisting your spine. There's no bright side to this. I'm doing it to spite them, those doctors. What do they know? They don't know what my pain looks like. I've drawn it once. It's like a giant rear end. Yep, a huge flabby one, ugly as hell. And that is my boyfriend. My boyfriend is a giant ass. If I still went to school, I would be a laughing stock. A girl who kisses asses. That would be me. Nice. This is the first time I actually agree with my mum about leaving school and staying at home to have her pretend to teach me. In this picture, my boyfriend's, I also drew a bow tie. Because I believe bow ties make everything look smarter. Not that I can think I can ever make pain, the ass, look nice or presentable enough. You can't blame a girl for trying, can you? Now that I'm locked up in my room, which was updated from princess meets pink to adult sensible young lady who keeps a garden in her walls. I'm able to spend hours and hours thinking about dates with my boyfriend. Pain in the ass. I imagine us going to the movies, sitting in the middle of a row. I would be beautiful and eating popcorn. Pain would be wearing his bow tie, sitting next to me. All the people around us would be turning discreetly from the screen to us, whispering, Hey, that girl's with an ass. An ass man, an ass. I will be munching on my popcorn without a care in the world, thinking that for sure I'm not the only girl in this day sitting next to an ass. Then we would probably go to a restaurant. That, I think, would be a troublesome place to bring an ass to. I mean, Payne might be wearing tie and all, but I don't think we would really be allowed in. Who would want to eat an expensive meal with an ass in the room? Really, I would have to give them that. Even a well-behaved ass would have problems with that, and I haven't decided how he behaves. So out with the restaurant. Maybe bowling. I've always wanted to go and it seems like a date full of fun. Can you imagine an ass bowling? One with a bow tie. Even I've got to laugh. I bet they don't have shoes that would fit. Or a bowling ball for that matter. Maybe we could go to an aquarium. I bet the fish would have something to say about my ass. And pain. 
and I can break as, as much as we want because fish don't have asses, do they? And I think I'll add in my diary a drawing of all these possible dates. Might make it into a Japanese manga. I'm sure there it might be funny. My mum will make me show my notebook to the therapist, like she did when I decided that pain was a shoe. And they will start wondering why I'm projecting pain into objects. That it shows I have low self-esteem. That I'm not dealing maturely enough with my condition. I'll let them be. This keeps my focus on something else. And I'm able to laugh in Payne's face, because who cannot laugh of an ass with a bow tie? The park. Maybe next time we can go on a date to the park. Cross over the road and head down the road directly opposite the park. Cross over by the pedestrian crossing and pause outside the university. Sing by Nina Singh. Lost. That is what I remember. Despair. Isolation. Change. It happens slowly. Adjustment. Difference. Relaxed. The fun began. Tranquil. Cool. Pleased. I finally belonged. Cheerful. Content. Buzzing. I really loved it all. Active. Hyper. Happiness. That is what they give me. Vogue. Dancing. Over. It ended so fast. Finally. Remember. Smile. It will make me sing for years to come. Smile. Then sing. Go through the university grounds and pause in the quadrangle. I Won't Hate You by Tom Jones I won't hate you if you do it. I'll just never speak to you again, ever. That's what she said to me. You don't reckon she means it, do you? I asked him. Of course she will. You know what she's like. Let's just do it, encouraged my best friend. Why did I do it? Why? It seemed like such a good idea. So simple. That was not meant to happen. I can't believe he talked me into it now. I wonder whether she hates me. I should have listened to her. As well as not talking to me, I'm convinced she hates me now as well. I did it for her though. Then there was a look on my mum's face. Disappointment? It was more than that. At least it wasn't hate. She once said she'd always love me no matter what I did. I don't think she thought this would ever happen though. I wonder whether he's okay. The flashback of his ashen fate and blood-curdling scream keep appearing as I go over it again and again. Why didn't he just hand it over? Why did he put up a fight? He looks such an easy target. That was not meant to happen. I wonder where Phil is. He's meant to be my best friend. He's surely going to come forward. It must have been panic that drove him to Scarpa like that. He can back me up. It was self-defense. That old geezer won't remember who was there or not, will he? That's what'll happen. Then it'll be okay. Then she won't hate me. I wonder whether there's still bloodstains on the quadrangle slabs. It was only a year ago I was stood there celebrating my graduation with her, Phil and Mum. Big smiles and a parchment in that picture. Now I bet my mugshot is all over the papers. I wonder what the people reading the papers think of me. Probably think I'm some homeless druggy chav doing it for the next hit or a can of special brew. If only they knew. They have to realise I was doing it for her. It was her last resort. It's not a justification or excuse. I just had to do it.
It was her only way out. I wonder if it went to plan, whether he'd now be in a worse state than he is in his hospital bed. I'm not saying anyone deserves to be stabbed, but after what he did to her, if I just got that laptop, we'd get the photos, then he wouldn't have that hold over her. I wonder if his wife had any idea that was in his head every night as he left the English department shortly after seven. Each night, comes out the main entrance, laptop back, always over the left shoulder, briefcase in the right hand. Short walk through the quadrangle, under the arches, past the Union, crossing Percy Street and onto the metro at Haymark and back to his cosy life in Gosforth. If only he knew what effect he'd had on her life back in our Heaton flat. If only his wife knew that was going to solve it. Phil was supposed to walk towards him, give me another nod that it was definitely him. I just had to sit by, grab the laptop, run like the clappers down that side alley by the old Museum of Antiquities. Then Phil would meet me by the Bedson building, and we'd be away on the bikes. Easy peasy. I only took the knife to scare him. Maybe just to slice the strap if there was a slight struggle. I never thought I'd have it in me to use it as a weapon. It was just that look on his face. It boiled an anger in me that I'd never felt before. The sound of her crying herself to sleep over the past year filled my ears. I just did it. I plunged it in him. Then he was lying there. I stood there frozen. Phil just looked at me with an ashen face, gave a blood-curling scream and then scarpered. I just stood there frozen to the spot. My trainers covered in scarlet blood by now. Next thing I knew, security guards had hold of me. I don't really know what happened next. Just a haze of sirens, blue flashing lights and questions. Questions from police. Questions in my head. I wonder whether you hate me. I won't hate you if you think bad of me. I know I deserve it. But at least she knows it's over now. Carry on through the quad and walk under the arches. Cross over the road and pause outside the Union building on your left. Time by Glenn Whitehead I nearly didn't come, but I had to. It's my last chance to start again. To clear my head and start living. Yet, can I do it? Shut up, you fool. You're doing the right thing. Your life here is over. I've been stood here for seven minutes. Every passerby could or should have been here. Yet, how many would I know? Of course you'll know. She's all you've been thinking about for the last week. A clock in my head drowns the buzz of the street. The impatient ticking quickens in pace. Ever since the phone call, I've known I would eventually have to meet her. Yet I'm stood here questioning the whole thing. You bloody idiot. Why would she want you? Get a grip of yourself. As a child, you're always told never to go off with a stranger. So why am I here? Bags packed, passport in pocket, and trying to persuade my pessimistic nature that this is a good idea. What the hell have you got here? A small wet room, a broken heart... No friends and growing credit card bill. Great. I wipe my wet palms down the side of my jeans and start to slowly stride to the corner. I make eye contact. She smiles. The girl on the phone. Is it her? The figure approaches, dressed all in black. She walks slowly, avoiding eye contact. She is, as I had imagined, pale in face and coy in nature. You better hope it's her. It's twenty past nine, so she's late. The train leaves soon. She's just as useless as you. I turn my gaze to catch her. Closer, closer. 
She walks straight past me. My heart stops dead. My blood runs cold. Was that her? Has she rejected me? Rejection. You should be used to it. You could write a self-help book on the fucking subject. Low-flying pigeons dart around my head. Yet the outside world is of no interest to me. My mind races with thoughts of my future. What will my family say? Will I see them again? What's it got to do with them? Where have they been since it hit the fan? You need someone you can trust. The street clears and I feel that I'm all alone. Go back to your cold, wet room. She's changed her mind. Anyway, why would she want you? If only I could go back and change what happened. Maybe things would be different. I wouldn't need to leave. All I wanted was here. Now what I am left with. Loneliness, confusion, and this voice. This voice deep in my head. This continuous pester makes it impossible to think. Pick up your bag and go get back to where you belong. I didn't realise that so much would change in such a short time. I used to be happy. I used to dream. We came here together to make a future. We were one. But now we are nothing. You've boxed on yourself. She's left you. Everyone has and everyone will. My world stands motionless. Time stops. A camera moves in for what will be the defining scene of my story. My pocket vibrates. A solo text. It reads, Sorry. Carry straight on and pause at the top of the steps. True Hearts by Steve Hamilton The legend of the Church of St Thomas the Martyr is regarded by the people of Newcastle as being one of the great tragic love stories. Although not as famous as the plays of Shakespeare or the poetry of Burns, many in the city feel that the tale encapsulates the true heart of the Geordie people. The story begins just a stone's throw from here, at the charming night spot, Sergeant Pepper's. It was out here, after an evening full of high spirits and much merriment, that Thomas Radcliffe came to the aid of a young lady who sought salvation from anyone who would listen for her aching feet. That young lady was Nicola Jones. Although Nicola was much larger than Tom, he gallantly offered her a piggyback, a chivalrous act that was not to go unnoticed. He struggled as far as this very church. Keen not to offend the curvy beauty, Tom suggested she may be more comfortable eating her chips and gravy on a bench just inside the grounds. This would also allow him to become more acquainted with the girl, who he knew had already stolen his heart. It was on this bench that, overcome by their feelings of love, and unknowing of finding one soulmate, they embraced. As they made their way to the entrance of the church itself, their passion intensified. It was only when the strength of their ardour could be restrained no longer that Nicola became wary of Tom's persistence that they make love. She did owe him for that piggyback and that. At Nicola's tender age, her stomach was still coming to terms with the rich foods of Greg's and with alcohol, even in the small amounts that she consumed daily. It was because of the regular early morning vomiting that this caused. More than four months passed before it was confirmed to the couple that Nicola was, in fact, with the child. When the paternity results arrived and confirmed Tom as the father, there were scenes of unrivalled celebration in Old Orleans, and if legend believed, not a single drop of any colour WKD was to be found. The festivities, however, were short-lived. As the couple searched the chronicle for flats which would take couples on benefits, 
it was revealed that they were not eligible for council housing. This caused uproar amongst friends and family of the tender couple, who were appalled that Gateshead Council deemed all them foreigners more deserving. As the nine months passed quickly by, and with seemingly no solution to be found, the luckless couple were once again rocked by some ill-fated news. Nicola's mother, after a short break in Turkey, had herself fallen in love with a waiter from her hotel, and she wanted them out of the house. Not wishing for his beloved Nicola to face the public embarrassment of not having the council flat she so rightly deserved, and saving the knowledge that single parents qualified for a flat, Tom decided to make the ultimate sacrifice. It was on a mild, minus six November evening that Tom killed himself. As word spread of the death and details of the heart-rending story unfolded, the wave of public sympathy led Newcastle Council to dedicate the church to Tom, a place where he found true love and got his end away. In an interview, the owner of Sergeant Peppers, who knew the pair very well, said, The young men of Newcastle who wish to care for their birds and children have two choices, work or suicide. On hearing this, Nicola said to whisper to baby Tiffany, Is that really a choice? Your journey is at an end. Take the steps down to the street below, and you will find yourself back where you started. On behalf of all the writers whose works you have enjoyed, thank you for listening.